Why do bad things happen to good people? No idea. Um, I don't know. Wow, that's an interesting question. So it is. It's the way the world's run. Really, don't think I, I have any philosophy to answer that, actually. That's one of the mysteries of the world. Um, There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just the ebb and flow of life. Why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, I guess they're unlucky. Bad things happen just out of uh, coincidence and... Uh, Part of life. It's a life process. Just uh, the way life is. Probably goes all the way back to the garden. <laughs> it's human nature. There has to be a balance in the world. It's the yin and the yang. Good people need to go through obstacles in their lives to achieve what they want. So they have some bad things happen to them. They have to get through it. You almost have to. It's almost a necessary evil. Something bad has to happen to you in order for you to really value the good things that come. The world's not perfect, so we're going to be affected by things the world throws at us, I guess. And then hopefully, you know, when the bad things come, you can take it in stride, knowing that surely the yin and the yang will always balance itself. Just because things are bad today doesn't mean that they'll continue to be that way. Seems real unfair, and um, I would like to think that karma at some point would step in and put a halt to it. I don't think that God has, like, picked people out to, like, suffer, et cetera, et cetera, but I do believe that he has a plan. I don't know if uh, God allows things to happen. I think just, things just happen. Things happen in more of a nature kind of way, and maybe God doesn't condone these things. Uh, and, uh, you know, events happen, and things come into people's lives, but that doesn't mean that it's bad. So we determine what's good and bad. God is all loving and that's what everyone teaches so there cannot be a correct answer why he allows suffering. Bad things allow um, people to realize how good God is I guess. When you don't follow the blueprint of life which is the word of God things bound to go wrong. I don't know. I, I can't answer that question. <laughs> good morning. In case we haven't met my name is Drew and I'm filling in today. And I've heard that as you guys are going through this hurdles series, that Chad actually jumped over some hurdles. Is that right? Um, I'm more of a basketball player myself, and so I decided uh, for, for everybody's sake, I wouldn't try to impress you that way today. But trust me, I could if I felt like it, okay? I just don't feel like it today. But I do hope that we can maybe address some of, of your hurdles today. And a hurdle that really all of us deal with, which is the problem of evil. You know, maybe as you're watching that footage while the band was playing, you know, and, and, and you think about these kinds of things, the stuff that goes on in the world around us, the natural disasters, the wars, the gun violence. You know, you see football players hitting their wives and children. You know, we ask God, why is there so much evil? Why is this happening? Why don't you do something about it? We realize that that happens to us as well. You know, we experience the evil that other people do to us if we're honest with ourselves. And we've got a little bit of evil in us sometimes, too. And, and we become part of the pain and the suffering in the world. And so that brings us to the problem of evil. And, you know, you heard one of these guys say that, well, they, they teach that God is loving, but there's no answer for why God loves suffering in the world. That's a tough question, isn't it? You know, for some of us, that becomes like a, a, a theoretical question, a philosophical question to kind of work through, a logic-based thing where, where we wonder, if God is all-powerful and God is good, then how does this stuff exist? But for all of us, whether we, whether we look at that part of it or not, for all of us, this becomes a very practical question, an emotional one, a personal one. Because I know people who have been hurt. I know people who have lost their homes. I know people who have lost a loved one. Maybe you have. 
Someone you love has gotten a terminal diagnosis. Or maybe that was you. And so the problem of evil is a problem for really for everybody. Whether you believe in God or you don't, this is a problem. And I know that th- these are hurdles that I've had to, to try to jump over in my own life. And it's not the kind that you jump over once and you never have to deal with it again. You know, I dealt with this in high school when a dear friend was raped. You say, how can that happen? Why wouldn't God stop that? You know, recently a, a friend of our family from church, uh, a woman lost her husband in a single car accident because of complications from his diabetes, even though they had his diabetes under control. And he left behind his wife and a 10-year-old son and an 8-year-old daughter. And my wife and I experienced this when we were first married. The, the suffering and the pain that we felt when we were told that we would never have kids. I experienced this and you experienced this when you hear a cruel word from somebody else or you speak a cruel word to somebody else. And the evil and the pain and the suffering are all around us. And so we come to this question. But what I realized was that as I asked this question... Whenever I voice, why is this happening? What's going on here? I realize that I'm, I'm kind of hoping that there's a response. Right? I don't want to hear what a lot of these people said on the screen. Well, you're just unlucky, I guess. Well, that's just how it goes. It's just sort of a nature thing. I'm really kind of hoping that maybe there is a God. And maybe he's got a response to this problem. And so today, I want to try to lower the hurdles of evil for you. So that we can consider God's response. And so the way we're going to do that is we're going to look first at at the theoretical hurdle. We're going to take on that that logic problem. We're also going to look at the practical hurdle. And I won't be able to remove those completely because certainly you'll have more questions and there are things that you're dealing with that I won't be able to speak directly to. But I hope that we can lower those hurdles enough to let us consider what God's response might be when we say, what's going on? Now, the theoretical hurdle is the first one we've got to address, because this is the way we most commonly hear the problem stated, and it comes from a philosopher named Epicurus. Epicurus lived several hundred years before the time of Jesus, and he certainly was not the first person to deal with this, but he was the first one to sort of put it together in a formula. And so most of the times that you hear the problem of evil stated, it's some variation on what Epicurus wrote. And this is what he said. Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able, but not willing, then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing, then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? This is the one that you hear everybody repeat when they wrestle with this issue. And usually it's stated more simply as a logic problem, a logical syllogism with a few premises and the conclusion that we can draw from that. And so you often see it stated this way. If you can give me the next slide. Why is there evil? Okay, number one, an omnipotent God could prevent evil. Number two, a good God would not permit evil. And yet, number three, there is evil. Therefore, God is either not omnipotent or not good, and thus, he is not God. Or at the very least, he's not God as the Bible describes him. Because the Bible says he's both, and yet the Bible acknowledges evil. So what do we do with this? Now, a couple weeks ago, Chad admitted to you that that he's something of a Star Trek geek. 
Now, I'm not so much of a Star Trek nerd. I, I tried to watch a little bit of the original series last night, actually, and it's like, it's kind of painful. <laughs> but I will tell you something else because I'm something of a logic nerd. Now, all of us had to take some logic, some philosophy somewhere, right? Either in high school or maybe college, they force you to take like philosophy 101. Right, so you probably heard a little bit about logical syllogisms and the way you put those together and how you draw a conclusion. Well, my dad taught my philosophy class in high school. So we were doing philosophy like at home. And, uh, and, and when I was a kid, I would actually go to the bookstore and I would buy books full of logic problems to work on. Wait for it. In my free time. <laughs> All right, so, so my brain works this way, and I love this kind of stuff. And so when I ask this question, and somebody says, yeah, but, but if he's all-powerful, then he could prevent evil. And if he's supposed to be good, then he would. But there is evil, so there's no God. All right, my logical brain says, it's airtight. There's an airtight logical argument. All of the premises follow right in line to the conclusion. And so this syllogism is valid. But if you can think all the way back to, to high school or college or whenever this was for you, here's what you need to remember. A logical argument can be valid because it follows from the premises and yet false if one of those premises is false. Are you tracking with me? I know this was like a, a long time ago. So I'll tell you what. I brought a video with, you, uh, with me to share with you today that, that will give you a picture of this. Because what I want you to see is a group of people who are trying to solve a logical problem based on false premises. Let's watch. We have found the witch. Might we burn What makes you think she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. A newt. Got better. Burn already! What? There are ways of telling whether she is a witch. Uh, tell me, what do you do with witches? And what do you burn apart from witches? Wood! So, why do witches burn? Because they're made of wood. <laughs> so, how do we tell whether she is made of wood? Build a bridge out of her. Ah, but can you not also make bridges out of stone? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah, cool. Uh, uh, does a wood sink in water? No, no, no it floats. It floats over into the pond. <laughs> what also floats in water? Braid. Apples, uh, very small rocks, cider, a great gravy, cherries, mud, a churches, churches, lead, lead, a duck, exactly. So, logically, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood, and therefore, a witch, a witch! We shall use by larger scales. Right, remove the supports. Away, away, away. This is a fair drop. Fair 
Now, hopefully, right away, you can see what the problem is there, right? In fact, when you watch that clip, and I bet you didn't know you'd be watching Monty Python this morning, right? When you watch that, the logic is airtight. The conclusion they come to that she is a witch is valid. In fact, she even admits it when she says, "'Tis a fair crop." Right? Because the logic lines up. The conclusion follows, but the problem is, for them, they've got a logic problem because essentially every single premise was wrong. All right, so let's come back to the logical statement of the problem of evil. Because here's what I want you to consider. If it's possible that even one of these premises is not true, then this would not disprove the existence of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God. So let's look at them. Well, number three, there is evil. The logical statement allows for that. The Bible allows for that as well. So number three is fine. Number one says an omnipotent God could prevent evil. The logical statement allows for that. So does the Bible. That's fine. But look at number two. A good God would not permit evil. Let's spend a minute on that one. Is it possible? Is it just possible that a good God could permit short-term evil, pain, suffering, to bring about a greater good that would still be in line with his character as a good God? See, if it's possible, then that whole logical argument breaks down. Let me, ha- let me illustrate this for you. Imagine a bear. You can do that, right? Imagine a bear whose foot is caught in a trap, and so he's experiencing pain and suffering. Now, a hunter happens to walk by. Out of the goodness of his heart, this hunter decides that he wants to set the bear free. So the first thing he's got to do is, well, he tries to win the bear's confidence. Don't worry, boy. Don't worry. I'm going to help you. Good bear. You're not going to win the bear's confidence, right? You can't explain to the bear what's happening or or what you're going to do. So instead, the hunter has to go to option B, which is to shoot the bear full of tranquilizers. So as the bear lays here, stuck in the trap, and this stranger comes by who is different than him, and he doesn't understand him, and not only that, but he pulls out a gun, and he starts shooting me. Now put yourself in the bear's position. What do you think of this hunter? He's making it worse. He's hurting me. He's causing the suffering. This is my enemy. Now, if the bear begins to give in to the tranquilizers, then the hunter comes over to release its paw from the trap. But to be able to do that, he actually has to push the paw further into the trap to release the tension on the spring so that he can open the trap and pull the bear's paw out. Now, I tried to actually find a a bear trap to bring with me today. Number one, they're apparently illegal for anything but decoration. (laughs) And I couldn't find anybody that owns one. Like, they're all over the place in Looney Tunes, but nobody actually has a bear trap. All right, but this is how they work. You would have to push the paw further in to release the tension to get it out. But again, think of yourself as the bear. All right, you're already hurting. Then he's shooting you. If you're even a little bit conscious at this point, he starts to push you further into the trap, confirming once and for all that this is an enemy. That's the conclusion that the bear comes to. But the bear would be wrong, wouldn't he? You see, because the bear doesn't have the perspective that the hunter has. The bear doesn't have the knowledge that the hunter has. The bear has no sense of what it is that the hunter is trying to accomplish and that in reality, 
a little bit more pain, a little bit more suffering is actually the path to freedom for the bear. And what I would suggest to you is that it's possible that this is an analogy for us and God. That we are like that bear and we look at the world around us and we look at our own lives and we experience these things and we say, we are suffering and God's just letting it happen. But is it possible? Just like the hunter couldn't under, the bear couldn't understand the hunter, but he could have trusted him. That there are places where God sees a greater good that, that we may not understand. You know, even if you try to explain it to the bear, he can't follow you. But that there may be times when God allows short-term evil, pain, and suffering to bring about a greater good. In fact, most leading philosophers and atheists have allowed that premise number two really doesn't work. Because even if we're just speaking about it in logical and theoretical terms, it is possible that a good God could seek a greater good through the evil, pain, and suffering and still maintain his goodness. And so even though this is the common presentation of it, you, you really don't hear leading theologians or atheists try to make that argument anymore. In fact, the Bible speaks to that premise. That's exactly how the Bible puts it together, that God is omnipotent, God is good, there is evil, but that God has a response to it. One place that we see this is in Genesis chapter 50, in the life of a man named Joseph. Now, we've actually been going through the life of Joseph in the equipping service. And so I'm going to give you like the incredibly, insanely short version of his life today. But if you want to follow up on that, there have been some excellent messages. Even Doug's this morning was, was worth picking up a CD on your way out. But you can, uh, you can actually go to the, I'll plug the brand new website too. You can go to the website and download those or maybe visit one of those services and get more on the life of Joseph. But the, the short version is that, that Joseph, when he was about 17, he gets a, a dream from God. It's a dream that says that he will be powerful, he will be important, and one day all of his brothers will bow down to him. Now, he does one of the unwise things in the history of the world, and he shares this dream with his brothers, who become very jealous of him. And so ten of his eleven brothers take Joseph, and they throw him into a pit while they sit by deciding how they should kill him. They decide, you know what? Instead of killing him, let's sell him into slavery. Then we've gotten rid of him and we've got some cash. All right, so Joseph, really by no fault of his own, is thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. Even while he's in slavery, he's falsely accused of sexual assault and thrown into prison. Now this happens over the course of, of several years in Joseph's life. And so he must be asking these kinds of questions. What's going on? Why is this happening? But even as he does that, it tells us in his life that the Lord was with him, that he kept his focus on the Lord. Now, why would he do that? Because he believed it was possible that God had a greater purpose behind this, a greater good. As it turns out, while Joseph was in prison, a couple of the king's servants also were thrown into prison. They also had dreams. Because of his relationship with God, Joseph was given the ability to interpret those dreams. And after a couple more years, the king of Egypt has a dream. The king's servants, remember Joseph, Joseph is called before the king, and he's able to interpret the dream. Now the king of Egypt's dream essentially was that they were about to face a tremendous famine, an incredible shortage of food, and that many lives would be lost. 
But first, they would have seven years of like amazing crops. Now, because Joseph interpreted this dream, because he was in a position to do this, they stored their food for those seven years so that when the famine came, they had plenty to eat. All right, so those are kind of the facts of the story. Now, what happens is, when Egypt has plenty to eat, everybody else around them is starving to death, including Joseph's family. So his brothers come to Egypt, because we've heard they've got food, and they come to beg for things to eat so that they don't die. The irony of it all is that they actually are standing before Joseph, begging him for food, not even realizing it's him. Because they think he's stuck in slavery somewhere. His father thinks he's dead. But God had a greater good in mind. And so when it comes to Genesis chapter 50, this is towards the end of Joseph's life now. His brothers come before him to kind of say their last goodbyes. And it says they fell down before him and and called themselves his servants. and And that his dreams had come true. And this is Joseph's response. Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. You see, what would happen if Joseph wasn't thrown in a pit? If he wasn't sold into slavery? If from that slavery he wasn't thrown into prison so that he might bump into some servants of the king and end up saving Egypt and all of the surrounding lands? You see, God did not cause the evil. His brothers did the evil to Joseph, but God permitted it for a short time because he saw a greater good. And because of that, Joseph's family was saved. Egypt was saved, and not only the physical, but he was able to reconcile the relationships with his brothers. This premise is is all over Scripture. Another place it shows up is Romans 8.28 which says that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. What that means is that that evil is a reality. We face these things. We face this suffering. And if we spend our time like the people in the video just saying, well, this, this stinks, but I guess this is how it is, then all we've got to show for it is how much we suffered. But God is telling us that it's, it's possible That if we look to him, he's doing something bigger. Now, sometimes we get the perspective that Joseph got. He lived long enough to see it all come together so he could reflect back on his life and say, now I know where God was at work. We don't always get that. But just like the bear could have trusted the hunter, I would ask you to consider, is it possible that we could trust God? Now, hopefully that lowers the theoretical hurdle enough that we can begin to consider some other things because the next hurdle that we've got to look at is the practical hurdle. And what I mean by the practical hurdle is just the reality that evil is real. Right? That was one of the premises that we've already looked at, that evil is real. Now, C.S. Lewis, when he looked at this problem himself, he said that, that rather than being evidence against God, evil may actually be evidence for God. Because of the fact that as, as, when C.S. Lewis was an atheist, he began to realize that there were things that he just knew right away, that's wrong, and, and that's right, and this is evil, and that's good, and this is just, and that's unjust. And he began to try to figure out, well, based on what? Based on what? Because if I have a sense of evil, and so I've got a sense of good, that has to come from somewhere. And he realized first just that his atheism was too simple. 
that he had to consider that, that this, in, this understanding of good and evil may have even come from God. And, and the fact that evil is real is something that almost nobody denies. Now, you will find people who try to say that, that good and evil are just societal constructs. Right? They're just things that we've been conditioned by society. They're not, they're not real. They're not eternal. One of those people was serial killer Ted Bundy. And, and you can read how he described the freedom he felt when he finally understood that there was no God, that evil and good are, are not real. They're just decisions that we make. And so he could make whatever decision that he wanted and, and experience happiness through that. Now, he had a, he had a twisted mind. You know, not everybody who argues that becomes a serial killer, but you see the problem with it. Because it puts us in the position of the highest authority. We begin to ask God questions that, that put us, the bear, above him when we say, why would you let this happen? How could you do this? You shouldn't do this. Right? Sometimes we're asking God to intervene. Sometimes we're asking him to get rid of the bad people. The, the problem is, if he got rid of the bad people, there would be nobody left. Because everybody has done something. Right? If God was going to intervene 100% of the time, none of us would be here this morning. But yet, evil is real. Now, if God is good, if he could not create evil, but if this says that he is the creator, well, then where did the evil come from? Well, evil comes from free will. It comes from us. Because we have the ability to choose. Now, that's how the Bible would explain it. That, that God did not create evil, but He created us. He gave us free will to experience in life. And because of that, we can choose to resist His authority. And when we do that, we make choices that hurt each other. In fact, the Bible would explain that, that uh, through that first sin, that's even what, what caused the world to break so that the natural disasters and things like that that cause pain and suffering occur. Well, if I'm going to allow that, if I'll entertain that for a moment, then it begs the question, why give us free will? Why wouldn't God make a world where we didn't have choice, so we couldn't make those mistakes, so we couldn't do those evil things? Why wouldn't he just create us so that we could only do good? Wouldn't that have been better? Well, let me tell you a story to, to help you kind of think about this. Because if we didn't have free will, if we could only choose good all of the time, then we're just robots, right? Then we wouldn't have meaningful relationships. We wouldn't be able to experience true love. Now, the picture that you're looking at is my daughter, Belle. I mentioned before that one of the, one of the times of the most pain in, in the life of my wife and I was when we were told we would never have kids. We've got four kids. So that didn't turn out to be true, <laughs> We've got four kids. This is our oldest. She's five years old, and she has an amazing gift for not going to bed when it's time to go to bed. <laughs> oh, now, parents, are you with me? <laughs> All right. So every, every night, you know, around 8 o'clock, we lay her down. You know, we, we sing the song. We read the story. We say the prayer. We've got, like, the same line you say every time as you pull the door closed. So we, we know this is the end, and we have our closure. And about 8 o'clock, she closes her eyes, and she rolls over. And about 8, 10... She has to go to the bathroom. And about 8.20, her doll needs a drink. And about 8.30, she's hungry and she can't wait till breakfast. And, and there's always something. You know, every night you get five or six visits from Belle. You know, you think you put her to bed. You go back downstairs and, oh, she's right behind you. <laughs> All right, so imagine for a moment. Or maybe you don't have to imagine. Maybe, maybe you live this too. 
but uh, this, this past week on Wednesday night, you know, we had one of these nights, put her to bed at eight, and we saw her five or six times between eight and nine. But then from nine till about ten, we didn't see her. All right, so this, we finally have kind of, she must be asleep. It's been a long time. She's made a, she's made a choice to quit bugging us. <laughs> and so I'm laying on the couch. It's about 10 o'clock. And I just, I hear these little feet coming down the stairs. And I'm thinking, that can't be Belle. Like, what is it this time? And as she comes down the stairs, she comes around the corner and, you know, she's doing kind of like this zombie walk. And, and you realize she's like 88% still asleep. And I say, hey, Belle, you know, what's up? What are you doing? And she walks over to where I am on the couch, flops on top of me, puts her arms around me and says, Dad, you're just the only daddy that I love. Oh. <laughs> now, in that moment, that's love. That's love. And, and I experienced that from her, but she didn't have to say that. Right? That's her free will at work. And because she chooses love, that has meaning to me. Now, there are definitely times where I wish my children would make more choices. And that would be pleasing to me if they would make good choices. I've got four kids, like I said, so they fight like all the time. And I realize that, that you know, it wouldn't be so bad maybe if we just removed all the people who did bad things. <laughs> Might make life a little easier because the best way to have no kids fighting is to have no kids, right? But then there's these moments where they choose the good, where they choose to love. You know, and the Bible calls God... God the Father. You know, he, he's looking at all of us as children, and He wants us to come downstairs because we want to tell Him we love Him. You see, if we were just robots, if she couldn't do anything but good, if she could only tell me she loves me, then if she comes down the stairs at 10 o'clock and says, I love you, Dad, then I just say, who forgot to turn bell off, right? But if we have choice, if we have free will, it becomes meaningful. Theologian Peter Kreeft describes it this way. Could God have created a world without evil? Could God have created a world without free will? That would have been a world without humans. Would it have been a place without hate? Yes. A place without suffering? Yes. But it also would have been a world without love, which is the highest value in the universe. That highest good never could have been experienced. Real love, our love of God and our love of each other, must involve a choice. Now you see, he is setting up another premise. He is saying that, that love is the greater good. And if it's possible that love is the greater good, then, then it's possible that God would permit temporary evil, pain, and suffering because he's got an, a picture of eternal love. In fact, Jesus says this himself when somebody came to Jesus in Matthew 22 and said, Jesus, of all the things that are written in this book, of all the stuff that's described to us, all the, all the commandments, all the things we're supposed to do, what's like the thing? What's the biggest thing that I've got to make sure I get? This is how Jesus answered him. You shall love. Not you shall obey. Right? Not you shall serve. Not you shall not question. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, love is everything to God. And love is not only God's greater good, 
But love is God's response to evil. And so if we can lower the theoretical hurdle, if we can lower the practical hurdle, and just for a minute, consider God's response, then we see that all of it is based around his love. Now, I would not be filling in for Chad properly. If I, died, if I did not attempt at least one science experiment. Is that true? So here's what we're going to try to do. What I have here is a water balloon. Now, now, front row people, don't worry. There's no splash section today. You don't need to put your coats on. In fact, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. If this was Chad, this probably wouldn't be water, right? It would be like gasoline or African killer bees or, or something like that. But I've just got a water balloon today. And I want this to represent us. All right, you are the water balloon. And this is the world that we live in. All right, this glass vase represents the world, and this water balloon represents us. And, and we like to think that we can live in the world, and we can be comfortable here, and we can come and go as we please, and, and that the world wouldn't be such a bad place. You know, and, and many times when we think about it this way, when we address the problem of evil to God, what we're really saying is, God, I'm not having as much fun as I think I could have. Could you come in here and try to make it better? You know, C.S. Lewis describes it as we're, we're not thinking of God as a father so much as we want to think of him as a, a grandfather who kind of minds his own business but gives us presents and things. All right, so, so here's the problem with that, though. All of us are living in this world, and all of us are dealing with a problem of evil. That flame represents the evil, the pain, the suffering that is in the world around us. And I don't know if you can see it, maybe you can see it up there, but when the evil and the suffering and the pain come into our lives, that pressure pulls us down, it weighs us down, it sucks us in, and we get stuck. We get really stuck. Now, what are we going to do about it? You know, sometimes we get comfortable there. We say, you know... Not everything's bad. I mean, this is really horrible, and this is really horrible, and the stuff around me I don't like, and the stuff within me I don't like sometimes, but it could be worse, and we stay stuck. But God has a response to the problem of evil not only around us, but the problem of evil within us, and his response is love. It is unique to Christianity. It is unique to the story that the Bible tells that God's way of dealing with the problem of evil, represented by this straw, is that he enters into our world. You see, most religions would tell you that, that God is all-powerful, he made this world, we messed it up, and now he punishes us. In fact, many times people characterize the God of the Bible that way. But in fact, the God of the Bible says that he created this world. And he loves us. Because of our free will, we can have a meaningful relationship with him and with each other in love. But it's true. We do mess it up, don't we? The problem of evil is not just out there, but the problem of evil is in here, too. And I'll be honest with you. If, if I'm God, that's it. I scrapped the project. Right? I wanted you to love me. But you do nothing but disobey, forget it. Let's just skip the whole thing. If I'm God, I pop the balloon, I let the water put the fire out, and we move on. Me and an empty world go on just enjoying our lives. Right, but that's not what God did. When we ask God 
Why is there so much evil? Why don't you do something about it? God says, I did. I did. I came into your suffering. I came into your pain. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, describes it this way. It says that Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. That's us. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. When we talk about Jesus and we talk about his cross, what we're saying is that his death took on our pain and suffering. His love that he would go through all of that for us was his response to the problem of evil. He felt every gunshot wound. He felt every tornado, every earthquake, every unkind word, every deadly diagnosis. Jesus took it all on himself so that we would look at the world around us, the suffering, the pain, the pressure, and say there's got to be something better than this. That the evil that's around us would drive us to realize that this is not where we want to be. But make us look to God. Make us turn back to God. In fact, he promises in Revelation 21.4, it says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, and there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's a promise that God is ultimately and finally going to deal with evil. He is temporarily permitting evil, pain, and suffering for the greater good of drawing us into a loving relationship with himself. When he does that, through the cross of Jesus Christ, he sets us free. Now when I hear that, that is a picture of God's grace. That is a picture that we have of hope. When he says that he is ultimately and finally going to deal with it and there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more tears, I say, God, what are you waiting for? Well, Second Peter tells us. One last verse I just want to share with you. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. All right, basically, God's not slacking off. He didn't forget. He's not unaware. It's not just what happens. In fact, he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. What is he waiting for? He's waiting for us. He's waiting for me. He might be waiting for you. Now, I know we all come into this room in different places this morning. You know, this may be just a logical question for you, or, or you may have experienced something this week that's got you asking this question and shedding tears. You know, and I know that, that, that some of us may be closer to saying, well, if, if that's the answer, I want in. I'm ready for that. I want to repent. I want to turn from the evil in my own, my own self and see how God wants to love me. And, and, and some of us may have more questions, and that's okay. But I would invite you to let the hurdles be lowered that you can consider God's response of grace and love to your heart. Would you pray with me? Father God, if you are all-powerful and you are all-knowing and God, you are good, then Lord, you know the things that, that hurt in our lives. You know the things that we see around us, that we see within ourselves. God, I just pray even this morning that we might be able to see you through that. Lord, that in, in even some of the small ways, we might get the kind of perspective that Joseph did to see your greater good so that we can trust you for the eternal, even though in this life we face the pain and suffering. 
God, I thank you for the response that you've given us through Jesus. I ask that you might make it known to our hearts. In your name, amen.